Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And today, in the first podcast for 2016, I'll be speaking to Dr. Jeff Nielsen, Senior Lecturer in Geography at the University of Sydney and Indonesian Coordinator at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, Jeff is... Jeff has been conducting research inspired by the work of British naturalist Alfred Wallace, who, along with Charles Darwin, was one of the authors of the theory of natural selection. Wallace travelled to Indonesia in the 1850s and 1860s, recording his travels and observations in the Malay Archipelago, first published in 1869. Since 2008, uh, Jeff has been visiting some of the sites that Wallace travelled to in the 1850s and 1860s. And Jeff, could I start by asking you, when Wallace did come to the Malay Archipelago in 1850s, it was obviously long before the formation of the modern Indonesian state as we know it today. Um, what sort of political entity did he encounter uh, when he travelled around the archipelago at the time? Clearly, in places such as Java, which he visited, um, he you know, encountered the, the Dutch colonial state, um, as he did in uh, in in Min the Minahasa region of North Sulawesi. Um, however, for the mo and he would often stay in you know in in houses of, of of Europeans when he was in the towns and cities, but for the most part of his eight years, um, he was re really in quite remote um, remote parts of the of the archipelago, living essentially with villages um, uh, that were outside really of the realm of the colonial state. So in that way it was quite informative that he would, going into a region, he would get the permission of the, the local raja, um, as he called it, whether it's you know, the, the, the local sultans or, or the local chiefs, which would allow him then to, to assume residence in a particular village and to do his collecting there. So what he what he came across, I, I find it quite in, insightful, uh, is he he coming across these local patronage systems, if you like, um, through the through through the local chiefs um, and 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 rajas in each place, and how it was necessary to get that approval. He also made different observations about the relationship um, between um, the, the the local chiefs um, and, and the people, which he considered to be for the most part quite oppressive, and then sort of servile uh, relationship between the two. Um, and I guess it seems to me that some of his day-to-day -day accounts of these patronage-based social relations um, resonate uh, somewhat with what we see in the, in the contemporary uh, Indonesian state. Okay, sure. And could you tell us a bit about some of the insights that you've encountered uh, in Wallace's ethnography? Uh, it probably should be noted, first of all, that from today's perspective, there are many some aspects of, of his ethnography that appear quaint, at best and possibly racist uh, at worst. So despite being you know, surprisingly progressive uh, for his time, he was also a man of, of Victorian England and some of, what, some of his writings reflect what, I've, what is sometimes referred to as a, as a taxonomic perspective on ethnography. So essentially you, uh, you'd, be, you'd be aware of his contributions to, to biogeography through, through the Wallace line. Um, where he uh, looks at the, the different faunas in, in eastern and western uh, Indonesia. He, he applies a similar approach to the races of humanity um, and makes a, a key distinction between the Malay races and the Papuan races. And so th this sort of taxonomic approach, which, which I should say conforms quite accurately with our current understanding of human history in Indonesia, uh, with the, the, the Austronesian expansion coming down and bringing a Neolithic people uh, into Indonesia and rubbing up against a, uh, 
a pre-existing agricultural society in New Guinea. So, so that that sort of that that combination of the two races dominates a lot of his um, a lot of his writing. Can you give us an example, perhaps, of of some of his writing uh, in brief that might help listeners just to understand the the sort of material that he was producing? I've, I guess in his. his I think his contribution to, to ethnography, for me, uh, more more so than that sort of taxonomic approach I just described, is where where it's influenced by debates on evolutionary thinking, mm. um, and I think that's sort of where where his greater still greater resonance with with today or contemporary ethnography is. So, for example, he, he struggled to understand, um, I guess, the the racial differences in any coherent way. He, he, he thought that he, he would have these sort of you know, views of what the, the moral, the intellectual, the material standing for each, for each of the races were. And for example, he, he considered that Papuans were, were generally superior in intelligence to the Malays. And, and he also felt that the Dayaks were, were morally superior to Europeans. So in, in, in this taxonomy, you could see that he, was sort of, he wasn't reaching any clear linear conclusions that many, some of his Victorian contemporaries were. At the time, so it's this combination of evolutionary thinking, human improvement, and, and ethnography that I think was, uh, I guess, his, his key contribution. And I, I do have a, a reading here that he, uh, uh, one of his writings on, on the Dayaks in Borneo, that I, I, I can share with you. If that's if that's appropriate. Oh, I think it'd be great if if you could read it for us. Okay, so in in the Malay Archipelago, he writes. Few subjects are of greater interest or of more vital importance to the welfare of a people than the state of the population, its increase or decrease, and the causes by which it is affected. During my residence among the hill dyaks, I was much struck by the apparent absence of those causes, which are generally supposed to check the increase of population, coupled with the evidence of a population almost stationary or very slightly increasing. The conditions generally supposed most favourable for the increase of population are an abundance of food, the absence of polygamy, and early marriages. Here, these conditions all exist. The people produce far more food than they consume and exchange the surplus for ornaments, gongs, and small cannon, which constitute their wealth. On the whole, they appear remarkably free from disease. Marriages take place early, although not too early, and old bachelors and old maids are alike unknown. Why, then, we must inquire, has not a greater population been produced? Why are the Dayak villages so small and so widely scattered, while nine tenths of the country is still covered with forest? So, I guess what what we have here is is uh, uh, bringing together his 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 observations um, of the Dayaks, but also trying to fit them within a, an evolutionary framework that might addresses the 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 checks he's referring to there, are the, the the Malthusian checks on population that so. Um, so determined and shaped his, his his theories of natural selection, and so it's sort of and he goes on. He was, he was very he was clearly impressed with Dayak society, and 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 he, and he went on to to use them as a key example of a society that perhaps is 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 moving to where whereas Western civilization at the time he thought had sort of questionable moral attributes, whereas he saw that the moral attributes and the the, the, the state of being of the Dayaks was in some way superior. And so in that way, perhaps something we could learn from. Okay, sure, sure. And I mean, in speaking to you sort of on previous occasions, you've mentioned, I think, that Wallace's theory of evolution was a little bit different to Charles Darwin's. And is it this sort of ethnography you're describing that led Wallace to a, to a different understanding of evolution? Yes, I think it was. I think it was a, a combination of his... 
uh, well, first of all, the, the time in the Malay Archipelago, I think, was clearly formative to his views on evolution and the differences with Darwin. And in particular, the, 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 the closeness, the intimacy that he has with a number of the communities he's living in, I think, alerted him to sort of to the, the, the aspects of, of indigenous culture, which he considered in the end to be superior to Western culture. Although he also maintained various other, you know, beliefs in the intellectual superiority, material superiority of Western civilization. So I'm not romanticising that too much. But he clearly recognised that there were certain attributes, certain latent capacities. Um, to, for example, latent capacities for, for mathematics or, or, or spirituality or, or, or the arts in these communities that made him think there wasn't such a great or linear difference uh, between Western society and Indigenous society in Indonesia. And that combined as well, interestingly enough, with his, um, his observations of the orangutan as well. So as I say, he was one of the first um, to make sort of detailed observations of, of the behaviour of the orangutan in Borneo. And uh, at, at one stage, we also adopted a, a baby orangutan um, after it should be noted, killing the mother. Um, but it was these observations of the orangutan, an anthropoid ape at the time, that made him also think that there were these an, an enormous gulf between the, the higher primates and humanity, combined with the, the relative universality of certain human values that sort of shaped his views on evolution. Okay, and I mean, could you explain just succinctly kind of how his theory of evolution differed from Charles, Charles Darwin's as a result? So, I mean, what, what they both came up with in their much celebrated sort of 1858 um, uh, papers that were read at the Linnaean Society, they came up with not evolution as such, but natural selection. So the, 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 the theory that, uh, that species produce more offspring than are needed, that there are natural checks and balances that may that reduce that level of population, and through that, the fittest survive, and there there will be variation in descendancy. That that's essentially natural selection. Both of them agreed on that as a mechanism. Yep. Um, the the one of the I guess there's two two key areas of difference. Um, one is uh, related to human evolution, which. Um, Wallace agreed wholeheartedly clearly that the human body uh, was a result of those same pressures um, of, of natural selection. However, he denied that, that certain human characteristics such as morality uh, also emerged through, through natural selections for some utilitarian purpose. He objected to that um, based on the, the perfectly logical premise, I'd say, that, that the natural selection can only act upon those traits that confer an advantage to the survival of the offspring. And in the case of, of moralistic altruism um, and potentially also aesthetics, he argued, uh, you know, musicality, artistic virtues, um, that this was not the case. That was, that, that was not conferring any sort of uh, competitive advantage to the offspring. And so for those, for those reasons, he felt that perhaps there were other, other forces. He, without, without, without dismissing natural selection, um, in general, thinking that there perhaps might be other mechanisms at play for some of these worldviews. So that, that was the one key difference on, on aspects of human evolution. And, and second of all, I know Tim Flannery in, in his book, uh, Here on Earth, emphasised the difference between a, a Darwinian view, which it, with its harsh struggle for existence um, and, and very reductionist 
view of down to the in the selfish gene, as Richard Dawkins likes to refer to it, against Wallace's more holistic view, which he applies at a planetary scale, and whereby he emphasizes the, the cooperative processes that are evident both in nature and human society that have shaped our evolution. Are those differences the aspects of Wallace's work that you're engaging with in your current research, or, or could you tell us a bit about that more broadly? I'm engaging with Wallace in 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 two ways, you could say. So, as you, as you mentioned earlier in your, in your introduction, in, in 2008, and that so that that marked uh, 150 years of the presentation of 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 the, the of Wallace and Darwin's papers at the Linnaean Society. So, in 2008, I started revisiting these these key collecting sites of Wallace's across Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, uh, with the idea of assessing the extent of environmental change that had occurred in each in each of the sites. So, I I visited ten. Um, 10 different sites, uh, collecting sites, and of course in, in some of them, I mean, such as, uh, such as Singapore where, where he visits Bukit Timah and, uh, and uh, I think writes uh, perhaps somewhat whimsically that, that you know, a, a Chinaman is eaten, eaten every other second day by tigers and you could hear the roars of the tiger um, quite clearly. You don't, with the exception of the Singapore Zoo perhaps, you don't hear sort of the, the roars of the, ti- the, the Singapore tiger resonating across Singapore. So and that's, in that place there was incredible environmental change, uh, whereas in other parts of the country, uh, areas around Manakwari, all the quite well-protected national parks um, around Minahasa, there'd been less environmental change. So that was, I guess that was this one aspect that's been an ongoing project of mine uh, since 2008. But yeah, more more recently, I've been rereading Wallace's ethnographic accounts of Indonesian communities and their livelihoods, and also his assessment of their moral, aesthetic, and social purposes, and comparing these against my own work use, that uses a sustainable uh, livelihoods framework in Indonesia. So I'm trying to ascertain if there are any insights into a, a Wallacean worldview that can be gleaned from this subject matter that I guess that both Wallace and I share, uh, the sort of the livelihoods and well-being of rural communities in Indonesia, um, albeit separated by 150 years of field research. So I'm trying to, I guess in, in short, you know, to work out is it possible to apply a Wallacean worldview to the challenges of maintaining sustainable livelihoods in contemporary Indonesia. Can you give us some examples of how you've gone uh, when, you, when you've travelled around to different communities and tried to, tried to apply this approach to sustainable livelihoods? First of all, perhaps a, a Wallacean worldview where, where, where cooperation is the hallmark of the natural world and where, where humanity has a more sharply honed moral sense of purpose seems to offer an alternative guiding framework for our society at the moment We're at a time we know with our immense environmental challenges. Um, and disciplines such as ecological economics, for example, are increasingly aware of the, the limitations of our current economic and social systems to ensuring a, a sustainable future. So where I'm, I'm coming into this um, uh, is by, by exploring one of Wallace's writings about the end point um, of, of progress, as he would have called it. Um, we, we tend to think about it as development, uh, which is very much inspired by this uh, growth-based uh, model of development. Um, and this, uh, I, I'm applying also, borrowing I should say from some of the ideas that Tim Flannery wrote about as well, um, whereby a Darwinian worldview goes hand in hand with this sort of nature, red in tooth and claw view of the world, uh, which has then been applied perhaps subconsciously to our growth-oriented 
uh, development models, whereas Wallace has this alternative view. So uh, where I'm trying to engage uh, with that then is by exploring the livelihood strategies of various communities uh, across Indonesia and how they're responding to the, I guess, the, the challenges of, the, of a dominant uh, development uh, model. Okay. Could you give us a concrete example? One would be, uh, we're doing research at the moment in the Semendo uh, districts of South Sumatra, looking at um, the livelihoods of coffee producers. And I've uh, just come back from a, a comparative study a visit to Vietnam, and we're looking at sort of the difference between the, the coffee producers in each of these countries. Now, in in the Semendo areas, you've got farmers that are producing maybe 500 kilograms of coffee per hectare. In Vietnam, they're producing three tons per hectare. And on the face of it, there it appears that if we uh, if we're and if we want to achieve maximum productivity and we hope maximum well-being, we need to increase the productivity of these coffee farmers. In, in Semendo, that is, and to bring them up to a level, perhaps, of the Vietnam, Vietnamese farmers. And yet, when we go and we talk to the farmers there, it's quite clear that they have a, a different view. They're, they're, they're prioritising uh, time with their family. They're, they're prioritising uh, religious obligations. They're prioritising how can they minimise their labour input um, rather than necessarily maximising um, their profits or their, their, their productivity at the end of the day. So I know that's just one example whereby the farmers there are clearly resisting a, a dominant economic model and it would seem to be supported by a, I guess, a, an alternative view of well-being. Okay, and does this relate back, I guess, to a Wallacean view of, of the world that you mentioned before? Well, I would argue yes. So I guess... Some some of Wallace's writings uh, accused of being utopian in, in their in their understanding of the perfection of the of the human spirit, um, but essentially Wallace, for example, writing on the on the sago growing communities in East Indonesia around around Seram and Maluku, he sort of marvels at the sago plant about how about uh, I think it was a, a dozen days of labour can then allow. Uh, the, an individual to, to be fed for the rest of the year through the production of sago, although that, that then uh, implies or results in, in laziness in terms of having to allocate the labour to more productive means. And so Wallace starts engaging with this and, and I think questioning um, whether it's necessary to, uh, you know, to increase productivity um, in, in, in such a way when perhaps there are alternative um, ideals of well-being, um, whether it's allocation of time to, to say, to, to family, to, to recreation, to artistic pursuits, and it's these sort these sorts of ideas that I think uh, Wallace presented and inspired his perhaps utopian views of the perfection of the human state. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting you you mentioned, and I would certainly agree that the dominant view, I guess, of governments of much research would be to look at an example of one community producing, sorry, was it 500 uh, kilograms and another three tonnes per hectare and, and think about how could you increase the production, how could you increase productivity. Do you, in fact, in travelling around Indonesia, find a lot of different communities who, I guess, aren't oriented to uh, maximising productivity production as, as their sense of well-being or, or is this fairly, fairly isolated to encounter? 
No, I think it's actually quite widespread. I mean, I, had a, uh, I remember a physicist friend of mine returning from a trip uh, to Bali, uh, a holiday trip, eh? and where he was amazed at the amount of time and effort given over to ceremony and the preparation of the, the floral offerings. And he went back and, and duly calculated the amount of lost GDP that was caused by this attention to such unproductive activities. And I guess, you know, Balinese society in itself, with its elaborate rituals and its you know, sophisticated artistic development in some ways uh, also embodies well actually we're a different prioritization um of 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 effort of human effort and i think that if you, it, you know, when you go around uh, Taraja, and a lot of the work in Taraja that, that i've done as well uh, the Taraja highlands of sulawesi whereby the end game and the key uh, the key point in a Trojan's life is is their death and, and the elaborate funeral ceremony and it's the maintenance of those social networks through the funeral ceremony that provides the, the real reason for being for the Trojan communities. So I would say that surprisingly I think there are still a number of sort of alternative views um, uh, that, that are held by Indonesian communities and, and these are views of course that are um, you know, uh, the attitude of the Semendo coffee farmers, which which are treated uh, derisively by government and mainstream development agencies, um, and they're under immense pressure as well, of course, uh, within modern Indonesia as well. But uh, th those same attitudes that sort of that that are the concern of mainstream development agencies, perhaps, are just emblematic of a of a different uh, different attitude to to well-being. Okay. And do you see this different attitude to well-being? as something that will be able to persist into the future in the communities where you've encountered it? You, meant, you mentioned the tensions it generates potentially with the government and, and others. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, I mean, it's not to say that the communities aren't under immense pressure. That They clearly are. I mean, we can the, the Dayak communities that, that Wallace so celebrated uh, in, in Borneo um, are now resisting with various degrees of success. I guess the advancement of, of, of palm oil development in, in places such as West Kalimantan uh, and elsewhere. Uh, or the villages on Aru who are also facing right now actually immense pressures from, from a, a land grab to, to develop massive sugar estates on, on Aru which are being proposed in the name of achieving food sovereignty. So I'm not sure whether I can... Uh, my, my contribution to this debate, if you like, is sort of, or, or my research is about examining these sorts of locations and these competing worldviews that, that are being contrasted in, whether it's a, a Dayak community in Kalimantan against the, the, the development of, of palm oil, and looking at where these local visions of, of, of livelihoods and well-being are rubbing up against this dominant economic system that prioritises profit maximisation and growth. And it seems to me, and I guess here's, 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 here's the rub, if you like, in terms of my, my adoption of the Wallachian view, is it seems that these conflicting visions that we see across Indonesia are in some way mirroring the competing evolutionary worldviews uh, emanating from a Darwinian or Wallachian view of evolutionary theory. Yeah. Uh, and I mean... From your research on these conflicting worldviews, I mean, are there insights that people living outside these communities can draw for their own everyday lives? Well, I would say that there's there's implications really for our understanding of human society and, and, and our role on the planet. Um, if, if, if we accept that sort of a, a neo-Darwinian view of evolution has contributed to this dominant growth model, has, has contributed to an ideas of infinite development, um, and purposeless development, um, 
then that perhaps contrasts with with the Wallacean view, which sees planetary limits. Um, it looks at the uh, at Earth as a as a living system system in its own right, and it also sees a purpose. For, for humanity on Earth, which is the uh, moving towards perhaps an idealised social state. And I would say that this then has important implications for, I guess, our role in being able to, or our understanding of how we should be addressing environmental challenges. I think there's an increasingly uh, well-recognised um, uh, view now that without human intervention, um, issues such as climate change, um, such as biodiversity loss, will not be solved and so that in fact humans and human action and intervention um, provide is necessary to address these sorts of challenges so I guess where this is that that is the big picture and and to to reach that that bigger picture I think by adopting a, a Wallacean view which perhaps has alternative understandings of of well-being is of immense importance for yeah, for people outside of Indonesia certainly okay and I mean within Indonesia itself you mentioned the pressure these communities come under, uh, I guess, through their conflicting worldview. Is it a case of kind of encroachment onto their sense of well-being of the more dominant perspective of worldview? Or, or is there also a movement within Indonesia to, uh, I guess, take into account these different senses of well-being in, in the way the government uh, goes about development? I think for, for a number of communities, there's quite clearly a feeling of encroachment um, into their into their, their, their sense of well-being. Um, I guess in, in saying this, and even by, by, by celebrating, uh, I guess, the Wallacean uh, ethnography, if you like, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm very cognizant that I should be careful of not sort of lapsing into a, a romanticisation of traditional life, or let alone sort of a, uh, a, a noble savage logic uh, at all, which, which does sort of pervade some of his writings. But at the same time, I think that there are quite clearly across Indonesia some some grave concerns held by communities over the nature of the development model as it's being rolled out. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we're uh, advocating any sort of sense of, of, of anti-modernity. Um, and in fact, it's quite clear that our economic system has contributed uh, amazingly well in terms of material advancement, uh, in terms of health, education, etc. And I, I would perhaps say in terms of the development model within Indonesia, one of the more uh, progressive aspects of it, which I think relates to this, this worldview, is the supports that are given for health and education now, the, the various um, uh, conditional cash transfer programs, for example, uh, which, which develop or try to develop capabilities uh, and the capacity of individuals as opposed to uh, a model that might be just promoting um, economic growth and development of whether it's palm oil uh, expansion or, or sugar sugar estate expansion for the sake of growth and develop uh, growth growth and expansion in its own right. Jeff, I mean, there's so much more I could ask you about this, but I'm afraid I think we're out of time. So thanks so much for for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks, Dave. It's been my pleasure. That was Dr. Jeff Nielsen, senior lecturer in geography at the University of Sydney and Indonesian coordinator at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Look out for the next Talking Indonesia podcast on 28 January, when my colleague Dr. Ken Setiawan will make her debut as new co-host. We'll alternate as host throughout 2016. And a reminder, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia series at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.